0: Today, we have a great episode. We're gonna be speaking with Jeremy Donovan. He's the SVP sales strategy of Salesloft. So he really knows this stuff. He's analyzed millions of emails and millions of campaigns. And he's gonna to talk to us about how to define your outbound campaign. Uh, whether it's tips from writing your the content in the mail to how many phone calls to you should have to anything that's involved with your outbound campaign. It's a really good insightful episode, so you're going to need to grab a pen and paper and take some notes. And before we get started, I'd like to to tell you about startup sales and what we're doing. Uh, If you're an early stage startup and you need help building out your sales processes, whether that's inbound or outbound sales processes, then we could come in and help you with that. We could help you in building the processes itself, writing the content for emails, uh, putting together your outbound strategy and the infrastructure around that, and building and training the team to implement everything once it gets up and running. So if you want more information on that, you can find out at StartupSales.io or you can email me at Adam at StartupSales.io. Let's jump into today's episode with Jeremy and learn how to build your outbound processes. Jeremy, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much, Adam. So, for all those who are listening, can you explain about who, who you are and what your role is at uh, SalesLoft and what your experience is?
1: Yeah, well, who I am sounds like a sort of deep metaphysical question, but who I am, at least in my professional life, is that I'm responsible for sales strategy at, at SalesLoft.
0: Okay. And
1: uh, for those that don't know what SalesLoft
0: is, uh, well, first of all, uh, welcome hey, start learning, uh, <laughs> but, uh, can you, can you explain a little bit about sales and what you
1: guys do there? Sure. Yeah. So Sales Loft, without being too too pitchy about it, is a sales engagement platform. And what that means is, if you're trying to prospect and get meetings with uh, with customers, then you can use us in order to orchestrate your email, phone, social, direct mail, etc. You can use that to orchestrate all your touches so you don't have to keep track of who you touched via what channel. It just reminds you when you get in the morning, pull it up, tells you who to call, who to email, and what to do. Yeah
0: great I, I know a lot of my guests that have been on here have said sales loft is a is a great tool and one of their favorites so so let's talk about let's just jump into it and kind of go off of there and uh if you're in charge of like sales strategy and stuff you're in charge of defining uh outbound processes is that yes. yeah
1: it's, it's really three things so we have a sales development team so SDRs, like you have in many places and that sales development team rolls up into me and right, we're defining how we respond to inbound. We're also defining how we respond or how we engage in the outbound and we're majority outbound. So that's a, a, definitely a big part of what we do. I do have two other pieces to my job, which is our solutions consultants or sales engineers roll up into me. And then, and then the sales strategy thing is basically any sort of major change management that has to happen within the company. Let's say we're defining territories or we're defining comp plans or what have you. Anytime we're doing a major change, I'll tend to get involved in both the kind of people. Well, it walks in all three of the people process and technology aspects do my thing and then hopefully hand it off to someone else to, to continue to run that. Yeah. All right. So
0: let's talk about the outbound part. Uh, how do you, how do you have that structured? Uh, first of all, in the, How do you have your team structured before we get into how to go outbound?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll even go higher level with how do we structure our our sales organization, our go-to-market function. So we, like most companies, have a marketing function, right? And they're doing all kinds of uh, the the traditional things that marketing does. They're doing field marketing. They're doing demand generation via digital marketing and so on. So they're helping to drive awareness in the population. And then they're also helping to drive leads uh, as well. So inbound leads. Then the uh, the uh, another function we have is our sales development function, and those people their goal is to book meetings with prospects, and they get paid on meetings that get held and qualified after they hand them off to salespeople. So that's that's uh, that's the sales development function, and then we have our salespeople who are hunters. Uh, so like many SaaS organizations, we separate our hunters from our farmers. So our hunters close business; they'll typically hold on to an account. For as long as there is upsell potential, in most of the accounts we work with, that's about a year, and then they hand that off into our customer success slash account management part of the organization. Well, it's really interesting because uh, many of the organizations
0: I've worked with and heard about, you you close the sale, and typically you'll you'll have like a window of two to three months to upsell them, but typically you're
1: right away passing it off. Yeah, you guys choose to go that way. It's, I think it's very contextual, right? So if you take uh, it, it really is, what's the window of opportunity for upsell? Because salespeople, you want, you want really need them to land and expand. I think there's almost, there's little debate about that. I mean, if you, if you try to wait for a massive deal to come, then you, you're putting your, your business at risk and customers don't necessarily want to buy that way. They're willing to, to, to test in whatever way is a small way for them. A little company, a small way might be, I don't know, five or 10 seats of a product and a big company that could be, 500 seats of a product, but they're going to test in some way and then they want to scale up. And then the question is, how long does it take? How long does that opportunity exist? A significant opportunity to upsell in in a smaller SaaS company, that opportunity might only be two to three months, right? A quarter, let's say, you know, hold it for 90 days. Uh, for us, we found that in general, there's a pretty good upsell opportunity for the first year in the mid-market segment. And then we also sell to large enterprises. And in large enterprises, we might have people hold indefinitely. So that's not uncommon in the places that I've worked for the, the, like the strategic accounts to, to have hybrid salespeople where they, they own the accounts indefinitely because the upsell opportunity is indefinite. Yeah, so I think it's really a function of of that. that. That's how you should decide whether it's you know thirty days, sixty days, ninety days, a
0: year, or, or forever. And so, are the for the ones that are more mid market, uh, the sales executives, are they also responsible for the first renewal? Then
1: uh, they were so yeah they, they well actually though the first renewal is done they that's kind of the handoff is is there the the customer success people will do the first renewal so they're holding it up to almost the end, then they're introducing the customer success professional to handle
0: the renewal. Okay. What are some of the downfalls in, uh, in this system?
1: Yeah. I mean, whenever every handoff is, is presents opportunity for breakage, right? So the handoff from the SDR, where they've booked a meeting to the sales executive is a, is an opportunity for breakage. And then the handoff, obviously from the, the uh, sales executive to the customer success slash account manager person is an opportunity for breakage. So you, that, I think there's a lot of, or I, I mean, there is a lot of process and, and discipline that you can put in to at least minimize some of that breakage. So for example, I mean, the the easiest thing is basically the warm handoff, right? So when you're handing off from an SDR to uh, an AE, you need to make sure that everything that that prospect substantive everything substantive the prospect told the ae i sorry told the sdr gets communicated to the ae right because the, the the prospect wants to feel like they don't have to repeat themselves and that they're understood and known and the same thing holds true from from the account executive to the to the customer success professional that they they want to make sure that everything is known about um you know, everything that should be known is known. You don't want to have to repeat yourself. I mean, I've had that experience myself where there's a transition from account executive to CSM or from one CSM to another. And it drives me crazy when they ask me all the questions that I just answered a month ago or two months ago for someone else. Right. They should have that all documented in 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 their CRM. Yeah,
0: I just had a, um, I signed up for a, a demo on on one company's uh page last week. And then somebody emailed me and said, Hey, I'm happy to set up a demo. Uh, please. Here's my calendar link. And then I, I click it, I set it up and then they email me right away. Thanks for setting up. I, let me introduce you to John. Who's coming to the demo. I'm like, well, right. but I was just talking to you like, what what did you do there? Like, how did you help me? And I'm thinking like, that's really poor, poor, uh, transition.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I it's, It is the typical, I mean, frankly, it is the typical SDR to, to AE transition. I think the, there's a couple of ways to handle that, right? I mean, one is in that, in that intervening time between when the SDR has booked the meeting and the, and the meeting is going to be held, they don't necessarily have to introduce the AE in advance, right? They can say once they get on, you know, once the call actually starts, they can say, you know, Hey, this is, this is Jane. Uh, I just wanted to let you know I've got our sales director Wilma on the phone, blah 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 blah. Right, and and maybe the SDR starts to do a little bit of the initial framing of the call, and then hands it off just naturally and conversationally to the AE who picks it up. I don't know that there's necessarily a right way, but but certainly in that early part of the relationship, you want the SDR to who booked the meeting with you and establish some degree of trust and rapport to still be you know to still be involved to to hand off that trust in a in a positive way. Well, uh,
0: in my, in my situation, that was the handoff. It was like, here, thanks by washing. My yeah. Hands. Yeah. That's no
1: good. Yeah. yeah. And the, yeah. Qualify me. <laughs> yeah. That's not good. So yeah, yeah, that, that is very, it's very likely in that instance that the, the scheduling people were not part of the company that it was outsourced, which is an option by the way. Uh, we can talk about that if you want, but some people outsource their, their appointment setting yeah, and, um, That could very well be what happened there because those folks are just paid on getting the meeting, you know, getting the meeting booked often.
0: I'm for early stage startups. I'm very against outsourcing at the beginning. Uh, You lose so much of the uh, the opportunity to speak to the customers and speak to the prospects and learn about the marketing, learn about your product market fit. Um, but I'm curious, what are, what are your thoughts on, on it? I, a thousand
1: percent agree with you. I, I think outsourcing is a, is a, a special tragedy in early stage startups where you are finding product market fit and where so often, you know, you may want even more senior people doing those early sales calls to figure out what's going on. Uh, you're still defining your sales processes. So yeah, it would absolutely be a tragedy to, to do that. And then even for later stage companies, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a very curmudgeon-y, sourpuss, whatever word you want to use with respect to outsourcing the appointment setting function for a few reasons. One is that, uh, is that it so often fails. And uh, I, I've talked to people who run outsourcing firms about this and and what where they come in is they say, look, if what you're trying to do is define your sales process and or trying to discover whether you have fit with a new segment of the market, then outsourcing fails at least 90% of the time. And they're pretty transparent about that, right? Cause, cause you don't have those iterations that you would otherwise have. Where they where they say they they thrive is is basically to provide you with scale once you've figured out your sales processes and once you've found your go-to market fit in that particular segment. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give them that. I think there's there's another thing that's really, really important, which is the SDR function um, often pays for itself, not simply by booking qualified meetings. Great if it does, but very often the SDR function is your feeder for your account executives, right? So in my experience, the best... The the I'm a statistician on the side, so <laughs> you're you're much the probability that someone's going to turn out to be a good AE is way way higher if they were an SDR for you first, and if you take some time to model that out, out economically, it turns out to be really economically beneficial to to actually have an SDR function. So the the, the so or here's like, a like training uh, training yeah, grants for your it's a, it's an eighteen month training program right it's a ter- it's a it's the hardest job in the world I think being an SDR. Uh, but it's an it's a great eighteen month training program. I've 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 encountered one exception to this, which is there are some companies where the where the the level of salespeople that you need is so is so senior that that you're not going to find SDRs who are going to move right who you're not going to move an SDR who has eighteen months in the job into a uh, sales job that requires eight to plus years of experience in sales. And and there are places like that. I was at a place that was like that, where the SDR to AE thing just didn't make sense because, um, with very very few exceptions, if a, an, a, an SDR had extreme, you know, gravitas and presence, which is possible in a twenty five year old, is pretty rare. So th- that would be my exception. But uh, in many cases,
0: though, if you need that level of account executive. Typically, it's better off to have a, a full cycle account executive, don't you think? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Because that's a super relationship driven thing. So you, you, you want to minimize as many handoffs as possible. So I would definitely go full cycle there. Yeah.
0: All right. Let's let's jump into uh, the meat and and go on uh, outbound. Where where should a company start uh, with wanting to go outbound?
1: Yeah, so the, as, as you would expect, right? I mean the the starting point is to figure out your your ICP, your ideal customer profile, right? So you're going to figure out who are the companies you're going to go after. You know, a lot of I think a lot of a lot of consultants and pundits and so will say like we'll give you these very complex things about defining your ICP. Uh, practically speaking, I think it's you're you're, you're thinking about probably industry, geography, and size as your three major dimensions. If you add anything else, it's probably something that is a requirement. If let's say you have a technical requirement to use your platform. So for example, we, we interoperate with a certain, um, set of email clients, particularly exchange and, um, and Gmail. And we interoperate with a few set of CRMs and if, the customer prospect doesn't have those technologies, right? That's outside of our ICP. So I think industry size geo for sure. And then some other criteria that's a a great indicator of either goodness of fit or, or poorness of fit is probably sufficient. Can you give an example of one of those indicators? Yeah. So like, yeah, for us, the, the, the goodness of fit or poorness of fit, as I said, for us is like the, the poorness of fit would be that they, That they uh, don't have exchange or gmail right like they're on on something like lotus notes for example right or if it's a crm there are some more esoteric crms out there you know beyond the the sales forces the dynamics and so on if they're on a super esoteric crm which does exist then you know we're not going to be able to support that Uh, so those would be disqualifiers and then there are there are sort of qualifying pieces of icp and for us we tend to sell to much more tech savvy companies. So if you, you know, if you don't have a somewhat higher volume, like we're looking for that that tech, tech savvy, you know, that tech savvy piece. So like if you're in the chemicals industry, right. Or even someone asked me yesterday, one of our AEs asked me yesterday is because I came from the, I was originally a semiconductor engineer and he asked me is a semiconductor industry, a good, a good target industry for us. And I've just said flat out, no, because, They, they have extremely long sales cycles. It's super relationship driven. It often goes through distribution. Like there's all these reasons why it's not a good fit. Yeah.
0: All right. And then do you, when you're defining your
1: ICP, are you looking at persona as well? So, yeah, I think the first piece is company. And then, yeah, the next piece is, okay, now we found the company. The next piece is the persona, uh, who you're going to go after. And, um, You know, I think the dimensions, the big dimensions of that really are the person's role and the person's seniority level. So companies will decide whether or not they're willing to talk to individual contributors. Um, Some companies start manager and up, some companies start director and up. Director is convenient because... Internationally, right? Director could be senior to vice president, or even even in the U.S. Uh, and the director could be senior. So a lot of companies will say basically director plus or director VP plus. Um, so that's that's kind of seniority level, and then obviously the job function is. You know, if you sell to, you know, we sell to the sales function or someone else might sell to the marketing function or to the finance function or to legal function or the operations function or what have you. Right. So I think figuring out functionally the the folks you're going to go after. And then uh, I don't think if you're in B2B, you can't really get get away from linkedin uh and we love linkedin so why would you want to get away from it since it it has so such rich information so you're going to come up with some boolean search strings that are indicators of both job title and of uh and seniority level so you can you know you can identify all those all those people using you know what's a great you know great tool linkedin sales navigator
0: yeah absolutely so, how are you using LinkedIn Sales Navigator to once you find define your query? How are you using that
1: to contact them or yeah. pull their information? Uh, so, I'll, I'll, one piece of rewind, which is that we're we're account based. So, we have assigned, we've identified that universe using the ICP of potential accounts. We have then assigned all of the account universe out to our our AES. A lot of early stage companies don't have to do that. Um, you know, they can just basically say. Anybody can go grab any account as long as, and as long as you have touched it in the last 30 days, it's yours. Like that's a pretty common way to operate. And I would say for most early stage companies, I would probably recommend just doing that, that because my metaphor is, is you got a big ocean, right. And you go fishing and if there's no biting, yeah, you just move to another spot, you know, like uh, it's not until you get bigger that you actually say, okay, they're not biting. Okay. Now I got to like, maybe I got to change my technique. I got to put use different line, and a different rod and different bait and go a little deeper and all that sort of thing. But when you're, when you're early, I would say, just have a have a really simple thing, which is like anyone can grab any account as long. And as long as you touch it in the last 30 days, you get to keep it. Um, so for us, as I said, we're account-based. So now moving on to the persona thing and using LinkedIn, t- to your question, right, we'll, again, we'll execute those Boolean searches. And we're going to, uh, you know, we have different tools that we use in order to pull those, uh, you know, pull those leads from LinkedIn over into our CRM and then enrich those leads with contact information, right? Add the email address, add the phone number to, to those things. So we're using uh, I think we're using lead IQ in order to pull uh, contacts over from LinkedIn Sales Navigator into our CRM. And then we use a combination of sources, Clearbit and uh, ZoomInfo in order to enrich the leads with contact information. Nice. All right. So
0: now that you've you've got that, I mean, is there any other way that you're sourcing leads?
1: no uh, other than you know whatever inbound things that we do linkedin sales navigator really is our our primary source i have in prior jobs sourced you know bought lists of uh, from other sources and i found that those lists never really produce uh, so i think linkedin sales navigator hands down is is the is the most valuable source because people are right. I mean, sort of obvious reasons, right. With that people are, are self-maintaining their profiles in there and they're they're It has the highest accuracy of any source. Yeah. It's straight from, straight from the source. Yeah. It's straight from the source. Yeah. <laughs> it gets weird when you sell to an industry that where people don't participate in LinkedIn. Right. So um, if you're selling to like I, I, I would assume that a company like Yelp has to take a very different approach, right? Because yeah, the peop, the small business, particularly with small business owners, right? Pizza shop owners, burger places, whatever. Uh, those people are probably not on LinkedIn, and they need to find other ways to to find those contacts. Yeah, well, you have other scraping companies
0: for that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, so now you've got the there you've used, you've defined your ideal client profile, you've used LinkedIn and other tools in order to get their contact information. Then what do you do? Yeah. So now,
1: now we, now, now it's the heart and soul of sales engagement. So we follow uh, a combination of stuff that we've learned from some research firms like Topo is a great research firm in the sales development space. And then we use our own data science. We up to, we're up to about a billion interactions between, um, our customers and their prospects so we will will kind of sniff into that data to figure out what works for us we have uh, a cadence of sales engagement that consists of phone email and social touches we execute about 15 or so 15 16 steps over the course of 16 business days and the the it starts out on day 1 with a call followed by an email we found that having a call followed by an email is, is the right way to do it on day one based on, again, research of what's working for, for us and our customers. And the call is something like, you know, hey, Adam, this is Jeremy from XYZ Company. Um, looking to get in touch with you about blah, 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 value proposition, I guess. And uh, I'm, gonna, I'm about to send you an email. If this is interesting to you, just respond to the email. And I, I think that's, a, that's much more effective than here's my phone number, call me back at this number. No one's ever going to call you back. It never happens. Yeah. So uh, just say, hey, heads up on the email, I think is, is the right way to do it. Then we drop the email. And um, and then our, our thing is basically that we found that you should spread your touches out so that they don't look like they're coming at a regular at regular intervals. So we basically do that pair of touches on day one. We wait a day. We'll do another set of touches. We'll wait two days. Touches. We'll wait three days. Touches. We we'll Wait four days. Touches. So we're expanding the the amount of time between each touch to give it a little breathing room and uh you know fairly call heavy we do uh, about five regular five calls where we don't leave a voicemail and two or three calls where we leave a voicemail we don't want to leave voicemails all the time and then we also do about um you know about five or so emails and I should get the exact numbers I just don't have in front of me should probably know them off the top of my head. And then we do two social touches and the two social touches start with one light social touch. So light social touch would be something like, you know, a follow or a like or a comment on someone's blog post. Right. It's something where you're not kind of invasively trying to get in there. You know, into their network, and that so that's touch one. So you, at least you're giving a little bit of value first, and then touch two is that you. Um, then the text te- te- touch two is the actual connection, and you want to obviously personalize that connection request. Just don't just use the generic connect. So
0: you you actually engage with them first before um, connecting with them.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think I you know it's it's very much the either do unto others as as you would have done unto you or do unto others as they would have done unto them which i think is even even stronger you know platinum rule if you will the, the for me personally right I get tons of connections on LinkedIn and you know, if you're listening to this, by the way, you're welcome to connect with me. There's a 99.99% chance I will accept your connection. Cause I accept almost every connection, unless you look like you're not a real human. Um, I just and, sent you one. I haven't gotten a uh, connection approval yet. Did, no, did you, did, uh, that's just Cause you probably just sent, I guess. Cause yeah. I literally was on, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an addict on LinkedIn. So I was literally on uh, about, about, uh, just before the just before we hopped on accepting connection, so yeah, go ahead and connect with me if you're human. I will I will accept your connection. Um, the the you know so I get these connection requests all the time, and sometimes I get this like a page of garbage trying to solicit me for something. I I don't want to read a page of your generic marketing copy, especially when you know when I've got so much content out there on LinkedIn that like how hard would it have been for you to to engage, you know, to actually have something relevant to me as opposed to your boilerplate. So, um, so, so we, we sort of, you know, apply that logic, right? Which is give them some value first by following or liking or, um, or commenting on, on something that they've done, if it exists. And then, then you can do the, the connection request. And when you do the connection request, again, no long boilerplate email esque connection, just something super short and contextual and personalized for them. That shows that a real human wrote it, as opposed to you copying and pasting or a machine doing it for you. Yeah, <laughs> you
0: could only automate so much uh, yeah. before it becomes ineffective. Yes,
1: yes. And then, like you know, on those on those emails, we're constantly optimizing, and we look at our data to figure out what works. So, for example, we know that one word subject lines perform the best, and if you exceed four words, it's it's very bad. And we know that asking questions in a subject line is bad. Uh, we know that subject lines that are have normal capitalization, like that grammatically correct capitalization, beat ones that are like all lowercase. For example, as some people think. So we, we're constantly looking at that sort of, of data science and then tuning, uh, and then tuning that. I think one of the most fascinating ones is is the greeting when you say you know if I if you there's like Adam comma or, or hi Adam or Hey Adam or hello, Adam. It turns out that, Hey Adam, uh, is the best. So things like that, right. We're constantly tuning to make sure that we're, we break through. Can it,
0: it's more, uh, personalized. It's a, Hey, it's more like a friend speaking to a friend. It is.
1: And I, you just got it. Like the fundamental thing is, you know, I could rattle off tons of best practices for how to craft sales engagement emails. And at the end of the day, the common thread that I've noticed between them is is it's like this balance of friendly formality, right? Respectful friendliness, however you want to combine those those sort of false dichotomies, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it would be you would want to write the email the way that you would to a colleague inside of your company, as opposed like that's the rule. So if you would not put a P.S. to a colleague in your company, which you would not do. Then don't do that in a prospecting email. And in fact, that's one of the things that that actually lowers your response rates. Is if you put a PS in there, and you know if you wouldn't put a ton of links in an email to an internal person, then then you shouldn't do it to a prospect. That's another thing that's bad. So like all the things that are bad are things that are commonsensically bad. If you just think about how would I how would I expect to send an email to a colleague? I would even take it a step further. Uh, what I normally
0: teach is is to write it in a way that like it matches your tonality when you speak. So don't put marketing words in there. Yeah, If you would speak it to your colleague and say it in the exact same way, then it's good. If you yeah. wouldn't
1: say it in that way, then it's bad. Agreed, and by the way, the data science backs up what you believe that we checked three things on this, on that, in that respect, one of them was we checked the, um, you know, like you take a marketing class or you read these books and the books, say use hyperbolic language or language about gains or urgency. And it turns out that using that language is lowers response rates, uh, and using like more new neutral language is, is better. We threw it into a word sentiment dictionary, all, all, you know, all the, all the emails into a word sentiment dictionary and like neutral actually does better than than sort of the positively biased or negatively biased. Um, And then the third thing is we threw it into a like a grammar analyzer and we found that the response rate basically declines as you increase grade level. So uh, elementary school or middle school level emails get the highest response rates. But then once you go into high school level. language and post sec you know, college or post-secondary language, your, your response rates drop dramatically. So yeah, keep it simple. And the data science backs that up. Wow. That's really interesting that the grammar uh, changes everything. The grammar does change. Yeah. The grammar does change everything. Wow. Simple, you know, like short and simple. Yeah. How, how long is
0: your, like generally your first email that goes out an outbound email? Yeah.
1: So we are, yeah, it's probably between like 50 and 100 words, depending on how it gets personalized. That's another thing is there is a, dr- a dramatic drop off of response rate after the um, you know after about 100 words. And I think that I haven't measured like how many words you can fit onto a mobile screen with, mm-hmm. with either zero scrolls or like half a scroll. But it probably correlates to that that sort of magic magic window of around 50, you know, 50 to 100 words, 50 to 75 words.
0: I wonder how many sentences that is, because I, I generally tell people to try to keep it to two to three sentences. You're not you're, the hey, Adam, but the the, the the context is two to three sentences.
1: Yeah, I think I think you can go a little bit. I, I think a sentence is let's call it. Ten, I don't know. Ten words, I'm guessing. So, yeah, that's like 20, 30 words. I think you can go to you could probably go to 50, you know, yeah. easily five six sentences but once you go beyond that then you're you know then you start to get into bad territory i think it's okay to have like a relatively personalized beginning a little bit of a little bit of hopefully not too heavy marketing you know body text and then the request for the meeting um yeah. i think that's okay i mean we, we found that that's that's okay but yeah keep it keep it as short as humanly possible that gets the email too by the way which email two? we tested a bunch of things and we found that the best the best uh, email two is just to put, please advise in the body of the email. So it's a threaded email, right? So you got the body, the, the previous email in there. So you get in the re in the subject line uh, as you naturally would with a threaded email. And then you just put, please advise in the body. And that that's, that's, that's the most effective email too. Wow. Yeah. And that's just how you end things off. Please advise. Please advise. Yeah. We tested that versus our regular email too, which is a bit longer. We tested that versus any thoughts question mark, and we had a, we had a bet going on, uh, please advise versus any thoughts. I was betting, uh, I was, I was on the side of, uh, please advise, but I have, I had, like the, I had the inside scoop cause I've used that before and, and seen the data science on that before and it, and I, it, it continues to work fairly effectively on, uh, I'm
0: want to take it away from outbound for a second on inbound, sure. uh, leads. Uh, I like to use a lot is, uh, is this still relevant, mm. uh, does,
1: do you have any science uh, on that? I haven't. I'm going to write that one down because uh, it's easy for me to check that. So, yeah, uh, that, yeah certainly if they haven't responded, then then um, wow. I think that that makes a lot of sense. The on on inbound, yeah, I mean, I think that's the right question because if they're not, their their interest is in the moment, right? The moment they click, request a demo, or contact us, or whatever. We uh, actually for. Uh, I don't know if I can use curse words. Uh, so I'll, I Go guess, for uh, so for shits and giggles, uh, I, I hit a hundred companies request a demo button and benchmarked how long it took them to respond to their first response. And I'm doing this from memory. I, I know that 40% responded within five minutes. Which is what people often advise you to do. Another ten percent, or another twenty percent, responded within the first hour. I think it was like ten percent within the first ten minutes, and then another ten percent with between eleven minutes and sixty minutes. And and you know, there's things that say five minutes is ideal. If if you do it within an hour, you're probably still fine. And so that left another forty percent of companies who you know took longer than an hour, often days to respond. Ten percent of the companies I hit, so ten out of the hundred, never never even responded to a. Request a demo request. Uh, and, and I actually hit, I, I do this periodically. I hit one yesterday or no, it was late, late last week, I guess. And like, they never, they never responded. So what we do on inbound, uh, you want me to go there where, what we do on inbound? Not yet. Let's not yet. All right. hold it. I'll hold it off. Although
0: that's really interesting. Cause I'm, I'm curious if, if those people were qualifying you and then they decided you're not qualified and then just dropped you, which is still not okay, but it makes more sense. Yeah. Or it would it make more, or would make they more just, sense. They just dropped
1: the ball. It would make more sense, but I think they largely dropped the ball. I mean, you know, we were in between series C and series D like, I was not hitting someone who exclusively sold to the enterprise. I was hitting someone who sold mid market and enterprise. So I don't know, maybe they looked at my face and decided I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't a good candidate (laughs) to sell to They didn't like the look of me.
0: It happens sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So let's we've built the cadences. Um, you, you have about five calls two two more calls with voicemail, about five emails and two or so social touches all within 16 business days. You said, yeah, all within 16 business days. Okay. How do you, there there's a bit in between the, the step before and getting those uh, prospects and starting this uh, these cadences, which is qualifying them. Because if you're going on LinkedIn and you just, do that are you doing any manual qualification before you before you send those emails out
1: not i mean the qualification is is on the is on that persona criteria right that they need to be director level or above they need to be working for companies that have a certain number of employees. They need to work in a certain set of functions. Let's say it's in sales development or inside sales or sales management, right? Like, so there's been a round of, I guess you'd call it pre-qualification on, on company ICP and then on the, the persona of the individuals. So that I would say that that's the pre-qualification. Uh, you know, then, as I said, we also look at, at their tech stack. So we have some data on, that from third-party providers on tech stacks. So that also gives us directional information about who to, about who to engage, but there's not really much more you can do than, than that in that, in that first wave that any other scale. (laughs) Yeah. At scale. I mean, any other substantive qualification is going to come once you, once you connect with them. So how
0: many, uh, would you do you know any numbers on how many are misqualified to how many sneak through the cracks and aren't the right people or the company?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it gets at it gets at our uh, at whatever your disqualification rate is that once you get on. But the, I mean, the things we're disqualifying on are, are different than the things that we we sort of qualify on in the, in the, that we pre-qualify on. Right. So, I I mean, there's not really, I doubt that much slips through on the pre-qualification because um, unless whatever our data source is wrong about the number of employees in the company, or unless our data source is, which in LinkedIn is pretty accurate about that, uh, you know, is wrong about what industry they're in and that sort of thing. Like, I don't think much, much gets DQ'd on that. The DQ happens once the salesperson gets on and they're doing discovery and demo, and and in the discovery part, you know, finds that that there's not need. Right? Uh, it's a typical. I mean, I don't. I don't a lot of uh, you know, again, consultants will talk about all their different different versions of qualification frameworks. It's all bent, just or, or you know, bent, <laughs> medic, different different and, words, and um, they just find us they find a uh, synonym and they build a new word and then they trademark it. Like it's all the same shit. Um, and so, so generally in those early stages, right, you're just qualifying on, we're, like it's too early for budget because they're going to find budget if they if they have a need, right? And it's probably too early on authority also because they're going to pull in, right? The I met mean, your job as a salesperson is to build consensus inside of organizations across the people who are making the decision. So it's too early to DQ on authority. You're really gonna you're really gonna qualify or disqualify mostly on need and timing. So like you you may find they just you know they're a chemical company and they, they, they just don't, the need is just not there. Uh, Like in the example I used earlier or timing wise, let's say they, you know, they, they, they just bought a competing solution. So the likelihood that they're going to buy within the next, whatever six month window is so low that it's, you know, you're going to put them into nurture and maybe put a, a flag in your CRM that says, Hey, like, re-engage in six months or something. So you can, you know, you can try to, you can try to win them over versus a competitor, but, but yes, I mean, in terms of the, in terms of the um, like pre-qualification should be pretty smooth. And then, and then you're just going to do the, the need and timing stuff in the, in the first wave. I always hated the,
0: uh, the A of BANT uh, authority. I, I always think it's the most useless. I mean, if, if you're qualifying to your ICP to begin with, then, uh, you, authority. Nobody sits there and really wastes their time good talking to a salesperson and going through this process if they're not having the authority to either drive it internally or bu- make the purchasing decision themselves. Anyways,
1: yeah, and that's why. Like, I mean, I I, I think of authority in the in a, in a slightly more abstract way, which is yes, I think it is the authority. The level, like decision making authority, but I think authority in terms of early stage qualification, and I guess maybe this is where the medic variant comes in, is really about understanding who the decision makers are and what's the decision process, right? So a a question I love to ask during during discovery is who, in addition to you, is involved in making, you know, who in addition to you will be involved in making a decision to purchase the solution. Yeah, and I love that question because it. You're not saying who's going to do it, implying that it's not them, that it, that they are involved. Right. And and the Miller Hyman methodology is great for this. Right. Miller Hyman talks about three types of buyers and then there's like an adder one is the uh the economic buyer of which there's one it's it's the person who ultimately signs the the check uh, or sorry yeah ultimately the check then you've got technical buyers who are the people who are going to evaluate the solution and are often people who would say no it could be it it could be procurement it could be um ops it could be whatever and then you've got the user buyers the people who are actually going to use the product i mean all of those people are they're all decision makers, right? I mean, they're all involved, and then that that sort of plus one is that someone's going to be your champion, probably one of the user buyers. Um, like all those people matter. So, yeah. so that for me, that's that's what authority is. It's it's decision. It's it's who's going. It, it's all those different decision makers, and then what's their process for actually making decisions within the company? How yeah. do how do they get that done? Definitely.
0: All right. So how how does your outbound uh, process differ from your inbound
1: it's it's actually relatively similar the the major difference is that our outbound we always personalize the first email and with inbound there's this trade off right which is it's not i mean ultimate the ultimate goal would be that you both personalize and engage within five minutes. That's really hard to do. Yeah. So if you have to choose one or the other, then you choose engage within five minutes. So what we do is if someone comes inbound, um what we will we will it comes inbound, we sort of auto score them and then we because we're account based, we know which salesperson is associated with every every account. And if that association exists, then we trigger an automated email that goes out from that person to the prospect, and it says, you know, hey Adam, uh, thanks for you know requesting a demo. Here's my here's my calendar, so you can click right here to schedule. Thanks, Jeremy. Right, mm-hmm. super short and tight, and and low effort on the part of the prospect. Like they get instant gratification on that email, and then there's no back and forth about scheduling. I just give you my calendar right right then and there for you to schedule. So while your interest is at its peak, you can, you know, you can grab a calendar slot. And I think about 80% of our, of our inbounds get scheduled that way. And then we have them in a, you know, we're using our own tool for this. So we have them in a cadence. And if they don't book the meeting within basically 24 hours, then we start to execute those call email and social steps after that. And I love your thing about, is this still relevant? So like, we're gonna, I'll, I'll definitely test, test that out. At, as, as maybe. as the- I, I
0: use the subject line still relevant, no question yeah. mark, just still relevant. And then I I'll write, Hey John, is this still relevant? Uh, is this still relevant to you or is this still relevant for sales loft? Uh, yeah. Whatever it may be. And yeah. yeah, question mark. That's it.
1: Yeah. So, so yeah, that's our inbound thing. We again is mostly about instant gratification, and, and instant ability to book meetings. I think that's the, that's the it, no secret, you know, that's, that's the best practice. Yeah.
0: Okay. And, um, what are some of the, do you know the numbers of like, uh, response rates, uh, for your outbound and inbound, Resp- open rates, response rates, response rates. Yeah. So people have some benchmarks to what's uh, average.
1: Yeah. I don't have it off the top of my head. What I do know, I don't have it off the top of my head for sales loft. What I do know is, you know, looking at our own, you know, our, our, customer base, it obviously it varies by all sorts of contextual things, but if you blend hundreds of millions of emails together, uh, typical email response rate for an individual email, let's call it three to 7%, maybe five in the middle. Uh, but, but, you know, depending on the, depending on, on, kind of where it's coming from and where it's going to, yeah, I'd say about three to 5%. And then that's just for one email. And then obviously because we're, we're, our customers are executing phone, email, social, direct mail, whatever, like basically engagement campaigns, right? They're going to, you know, if any one touch has a, uh, has a 5% response rate, then you're going to have to sort of accumulate those touches and you probably get to, you know, someone asked me this yesterday, it's probably about one in 10, People that you engage, you ultimately get a meeting with, and then outbound. That's outbound, yeah. Yeah. Inbound much much higher, right? I mean, they right. And there's two types of inbound. There's there's like warm or hot inbound, and then there's there's kind of white paper inbound. Yeah, white paper inbound. (laughs) So so the white paper inbound doesn't really convert much much higher than the you know than the regular outbound. Obviously the the red hot inbound request a demo, contact me. That stuff converts at extremely high rates.
0: So outbound, you're seeing typically around a 10% uh,
1: meeting rate. Meeting. Uh, yeah. Meeting rate. Okay. And I've been a bunch of places and it's, it's like, it's always 10%. Like it's, it's one of those things that, that there's a few numbers that you just see everywhere you go. And that's one that I've seen everywhere, I, everywhere I've gone. Yeah.
0: All right. And you, one of the things you said is uh, on the inbound ones that it's really important that they you get them while they're hot. So you send that email within five minutes. Why not put uh, the calendar? Have the routing options happen in the background when they click uh, set up, book a demo, and then show a calendar right then and there for them, and show the uh, the availability of the
1: AE's uh, calendar. Yeah, I, I think that's a yeah, I think that's a common thing to do. A lot of companies are using like Drift these days to do that. I think it's a great thing to do or whatever. Or there's a lot of competitors. I'm not want to promote one versus the other yeah. uh, intercom, I guess is another big one and there's a whole bunch of other ones, but yeah, like that's a very common thing that if you want a meeting, just start, put, put them into a, into a AI esque sort of thing that can book the meeting right then and there. So yeah, that's even, even, you know, they're equally good. People like to engage in different ways. You know, it's not like everyone wants to engage in one way. Um, some people like the drift sort of thing, the AI bot, if you will, and then some people don't. So, just provide multiple options for people to get in. I think is a way to do it. Yeah,
0: I typically ignore those little bouncy things in the corner. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do too. Like,
1: I'm much more likely to, to hit a contact, you know, contact us button or, or request a demo button than I am to do the bouncy thing in the corner. Yeah, uh, but that's also like, I'm not. I don't even know what I'm. Gen- I used to think I guess I'm Gen X probably, which which I used to think it was like the young people, and now Gen X is the old people. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it happens. It's a cycle. I'm yeah. also feeling every day like, oh boy, I'm getting older. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I I know I've seen a couple times, um, like people are just putting an iframe of uh, Calendly of their mm-hmm. Calendly uh, there, so it's not even going through an AI. You just simply choose a date and a time and it's right there all in yeah, front of you. I think it's perfect.
1: Yeah. The key is if you can really integrate that with, with the right, if you're account based, then the right, um, AEs calendar, right? That's, it's not super sophisticated to do that, but I, I think that that makes a big difference is like, don't just, cause you want to minimize the handoffs. And if you can just book it on the, if you're account based, book it on the, on the right AEs calendar, you're golden, but, Yeah, I mean, again, instant gratification trumps. (laughs) Maybe that's even worth the handoff, right? Yeah, like if I want a demo, I probably want the demo right now. Yeah, ideally. And I'm curious as to the drop
0: off rate. Like, if you just if you had people do that, and how how that would work? If uh, because you could always have your AEs always available. Yeah, Uh, you know, got a big enough team, it could around robin that way and pretty much get it equal. Uh,
1: yeah. Again, if you're not account based, you totally want you definitely want to do the round robin thing yeah. so so you get the speed. If you're account based, then you're sacrificing, you know that that load balancing that you get with the round robin for yeah. something deeper, and especially when you're after going after, um, like enterprise accounts, you don't want to round robin in, in that in that environment. You want you want to make sure it goes to the person who knows the business and can have that contextual business conversation. But if you're selling to SMB, like go for it round Robin all, all day long. I wouldn't, uh, if I was selling
0: to enterprises, I wouldn't just jump into a demo just because they asked for one right away. Anyway. Right, so, right.
1: <laughs> exactly. Different issue.
0: Different issue indeed. All right. So last question before we get going, we're getting close on time here. Um, what What is like the, the number one, tip that you would give to people uh to increase their outbound uh numbers activity
1: this just one word um you know i'm a big i'm a big fan of this book called cracking the sales management code um jason jordan and michelle uh visit Van, i think is her is her last name something like that uh and that book basically talks about as a as a sales leader you have um you start with your business result right which is generally revenue you work backwards to a business objective which is often something like uh, an opportunity generated and then you work back from that to what are the activities you need to to get you know to achieve that objective which achieves the business result and the only thing as a first line sales manager uh or leader or whatever the only thing you can affect is is like two things it's activity volume and activity effectiveness that's all you have So, um, if you want to increase your, your production, easiest lever to pull is activity volume and second easiest, or that looks like harder, but the only other thing you can really do is activity effectiveness. So, you know, my, for better or worse, right. It's, it's, it's just math. And if you're not making your, you know, whatever number of dials per day, you're not sending your emails per day, nothing's going to happen. I had a CEO I worked for, um, the, uh, had a, he had a great expression. It's like, if you don't knock, it's sort of an obvious expression, but if like, if you don't knock on the door you don't ring the doorbell, no one's going to answer. Yeah, that's it. So <laughs> act, activity is my one word answer to that. Yeah. I, I would
0: put a big asterisk though on that. Uh, and I know this isn't what you mean at all, but don't, uh, don't burn your bridges and, and do too much activity to the wrong
1: people. Yeah. Uh, so. Fair. <laughs> I like the asterisk. I agree with the asterisk. Yeah.
0: All right, Jeremy, uh we're out of time, so I really appreciate you coming on. How can people learn more about Salesloft and and this outbound
1: numbers that you guys have and and also about you? Yeah, uh best way to learn about Salesloft is just salesloft.com. And then best way to learn about me is is uh I, I avoid all social networks except for LinkedIn, so connect with me on LinkedIn and I try to post something, you know, data driven actionable every couple of days. And, and, and like, I, I I try to practice what I preach on LinkedIn that I don't put garbage on there. I don't video myself walking around and talking. I just try to do something short and sweet. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right, Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io. All right, Jeremy, let's finish things off with the final five. All right. What is your favorite sales or leadership book?
1: Uh, Oh... Wow! Do you have I, something uh, that you read for sales and leadership advice? I, I, there's not one person. No, I, I follow John Barrows, um, and I enjoy following him. And then I follow Kenan, uh, the sales guy. And I would say it's love. It's like a, a love hate or bittersweet kind of relationship that I, I think his content is often outstanding, but I'm not. I I don't love his style, but yeah. I look past the, past the style and look at the content. <laughs> oh, Oh, sorry. One more. I apologize. Which is Chris Orlob at Gong. Uh, actually he probably is my number one because he has such great data driven stuff. Yeah.
0: Just had a, uh, a meet the uh, CEO and founder, uh, on the show. Uh, awesome. Great. Um, are you available 24 seven or do you have strict personal time boundaries?
1: I don't have personal time boundaries, but I would say it's I'm available from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. <laughs> After that, I shut down. <laughs> Good. What is your favorite tool used for sales? So I can't use my own company, I
0: guess. <laughs> uh, oh, I love it's a great, a great tool and I think yeah. everybody should have, have a solution like
1: this. I, I joined because I was a customer for many years, uh, but besides that, I think my favorite sales tool is LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Excellent.
0: What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders and uh, sales leaders out there?
1: Well, I haven't been a founder, so like uh, I, I probably don't have the credibility to give advice. Except um, you know, keep your head up, probably because <laughs> because <laughs> it's it's it, from the founders I've known it's incredibly it's incredibly hard. Um, for the sales leaders, my advice is is I really pattern this after you know the sales leaders that I've had the most respect for and that I learn from. Um, it gets another book I love. It's not a sales book, but it's called Radical Candor. Definitely one of my favorite books. And the the, the gist of Radical Candor is is that you care deeply and you challenge directly. And I think the, my advice to sales leaders is is basically build your relationship capital by caring deeply about people all the time. And then you spend that relationship capital challenging them directly to, to achieve what, you know, they need to achieve to be successful, what you need them to achieve to be successful. So, uh, practice, practice, radical candor is my, is my advice.
0: Excellent. Practice radical, radical candor. I'll put that book in the uh, show notes as well for everybody listening. Yeah. It's a, uh, incredible book. Cool. Jeremy, thank you very much again. My pleasure. Thanks again, Adam.